You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We'll hear argument first this morning, case 18-1432, Nasrallah versus Barr. Mr. Hughes? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The next time Chief Justice John Roberts says those opening words, we will all be able to hear them. For the first time in its history, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments by telephone and will allow live broadcasts, an extraordinary break with tradition, and a bow to the measures mandated by the coronavirus pandemic. Joining me is Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. So, Neil, are you surprised that this court, so steeped in tradition, is changing the way it hears arguments? Well, some of the changes don't surprise me at all. I think they had no choice but to go to these alternative forms of meeting and holding oral argument. But the fact that they're allowing those arguments to be live-streamed is really extraordinary. It wasn't required under the circumstances, and I think that's, that's really quite a break. And I can only hope that the court will continue to adhere to its new tradition. The court has allowed the release of audio on the same day as arguments about 27 times. Live audio has never been allowed. The justices released the audio of the arguments at the end of the week. And I've wondered Mm -hmm. if it's because they don't want that audio being used in news stories on the day of the arguments. Yeah, I think that they perceive that a lot of their power is rooted in the mystique around the court. And if people can actually hear it live and hear the justices' voices, that that all starts to take away from from their mystique. So I think there's something to the idea that they don't like the oral arguments to be routinely used as part of stories. But in this instance, it's going to be out there live, and there's no stopping its use. I imagine that they'll be broadcast live on television with some kind of graphics attached to them. And then that raises some of the interesting conundrums that the court has pointed out in the past, like will lawyers start playing not so much to the judges, but to the audience at home? And then following that out, will justices do the same? Will they grandstand and try to um, create a kind of public image and following for themselves? It'll all be really interesting to watch and follow. The attorneys who are going to be arguing There's got to be a lot of pressure on them now because they know how many people are going to be listening to these first arguments and some very controversial arguments. How will they prep for these? In a different way, you think? Well, I think they'll have to prep in a different way because in a number of the cases, they have to take account of the fact that there will be a much broader public audience than usual. And so if what you're arguing is some kind of antitrust issue or a tax issue, then the home audience doesn't matter very much. But consider, for example, the lawyers who are going to be arguing the cases about Trump's amenability to subpoena. Does he have to respond to congressional subpoenas or the subpoenas from the New York grand jury? The audience at home is going to matter a lot. Public opinion matters a lot in these cases. And I think the president's lawyers are going to soon learn that phenomenon that many of his advisors learn, and that is that he watches television. And if Fox News is broadcasting these arguments live, he's going to be watching their arguments. And if they want to continue to be his lawyers, they better take into account the fact that he's paying attention to what they have to say, and he's going to be paying attention to how what they have to say plays in the public. Another thing to consider with the lawyers is they don't get any feedback from the justices. They can't see how the justices are reacting, any facial movements, you know, anything like that. 
Does mm-hmm. that hurt them? It may hurt in that it's hard to make that kind of a presentation where you just don't know what the audience is doing. You watch the the late night talk show hosts, and it's a completely different thing that they're doing when they don't have a live studio audience. And they give their monologues, but there's no way for them to know, did that joke work? Didn't it work? And to build off of that, it's a really difficult thing to do. And so lawyers are going to have that problem of not knowing whether the argument or the point that they've just made seems to be one that is being accepted by the court or one where the justices are rolling their eyes, which very often that's immediate feedback that the lawyers get and they can try to fix and cover up their tracks and restate the point in a way that may work better if they know that there's eye rolling going on. But if they don't, well, now they're left out there just to wonder. That's a great comparison. When I've watched the late night shows lately, it seems as if the jokes are falling flat without the audience response. Right. And that phenomenon can work with the justices, too. I mean, to carry the joke metaphor, justices do make jokes from the bench. And it'll be interesting to see what the justices do when they don't know how their audience is reacting to them, right? Their audience being the other justices and and others in the court. So that effect is going to play on everybody. Also, this is what's called a hot bench. In normal times, the justices are rapid-firing questions. They step on each other sometimes. So Mm -hmm. will they have to have different procedures when they're all on the telephone? Yeah, that'll be hard, particularly for Chief Justice Roberts, to manage because, as I think most of us have learned over the last few weeks when we're on Zoom or whatever other forms of communicating we're using, we very often end up stepping on each other without meaning to. You start talking and you didn't know that somebody else is going to be talking at the same time. The sorts of visual cues that we very often get accompanying our spoken communications will be absent. That's going to be a real challenge for the court in particular. Now, they're choosing 10 cases out of the 20 that they postponed arguments in. Some of them are very controversial cases. You mentioned possibly the most controversial, the cases involving Trump's subpoenas. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a case about faithless electors, members of the Electoral Mm -hmm. College who don't want to vote for the person they're pledged to vote for. That seems like one that would have to be decided quickly. Yes, certainly it makes sense to try to decide that one before the coming presidential election because we'd like to know in advance just what the duty of those electors is. And with the Trump subpoena, the court was already getting some criticism about putting those arguments off, and there was concern that that wouldn't be heard before the elections. That seemed to be one of the most pressing Yeah, it's pressing, and it's important for the court to decide it not just before the election, but long enough before the election that it's not coming out right in the heat of the election. So the most important thing is that the court render its decision in that case by June. Having pushed the oral arguments back a little bit shouldn't prevent the court from doing that. So some of the other cases, two involve religion, including one, the Trump administration. The question is whether it may allow employers to limit women's access to free birth control under Obamacare. Do you see those as being time sensitive? Yes and no. So my answer to your question would have been no, 
because those aren't cases that need to be decided in the way the subpoena case does. There's not an election coming up that makes these cases urgent in the way the Supreme Court looks at it. Of course, if it's your insurance plan and your birth control is an issue of the utmost urgency. But the way the court looks at these issues, it's not so much. But the thing that I think makes it urgent is if you think about the interview that Attorney General Barr gave with Fox News last week, when he was suggesting that there are real limits on how governments can respond to the pandemic in ways that might affect religion. Well, what the Supreme Court says in these insurance cases is apt to have real consequences for what kinds of limits are there on governors imposing limits on groups getting together when those neutral limits apply to religious gatherings as well. So I think the Supreme Court has something important to say on that question, and it's pretty urgent that that get out there, given where we are with the responses to the pandemic. Some of the others may be more difficult to figure out why they put them on the list of arguments. One involves robocalls and trademarks. So at this point, do you think they're just trying to balance out the controversial cases with the not-so-controversial cases? Is there any rhyme or reason to this? There must be, right? It's the Supreme Court. Yeah, we we like to think there's rhyme or reason, and I suspect there is, but the Supreme Court marches to the beat of its own drummer. What it thinks is important isn't necessarily what the rest of us think is important. So, you know, it's choosing cases based on its, its own thought process, and very often we're not allowed to know what that thought process is. And I think that describes some of what you're talking about. I think the robocalls case might have something to do, again, with the coming election, the prevalence of robocalls in that setting. But some of the other questions, I think, are questions that didn't obviously need to be taken now as opposed to when the court might get back together in October. If these live streaming arguments go well, the lawyers don't grandstand, the justices are comfortable, will there be pressure on the justices to continue live streaming? Although I often wonder if the justices ever feel any real pressure. Yeah, I don't think they feel pressure, but I do think it will lend itself to exactly that argument. And, you know, it's a it's a changing bench. A lot of the characters who are most adamantly opposed to cameras in the courtroom and live broadcasts aren't on the court anymore. Justice Souter, for example, was an adamant opponent. And I think the concerns about grandstanding, they were never mentioned by name, but a lot of that was about Justice Scalia, and that dynamic isn't there on the court anymore. So I think a lot of the bases of the court's reluctance maybe are eroding, and this kind of forced experiment might end up providing an impetus for the court to change its policy. It won't change its policy because it's knuckling under the pressure. It's independent, and it just doesn't feel the kind of pressure that, say, Congress might because it has to stand for re-election. Thanks, Neil. That's Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. The Supreme Court altered tradition for the second time this week in the face of the coronavirus pandemic. It will limit the number of paper filings required of advocates. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. So, Kimberly, tell us what the court usually requires for filings and what it's requiring now. Well, the requirements to file Supreme Court documents are very robust. In fact, there are actually private companies that specialize in printing these documents to make sure that you can actually meet all of the requirements. And usually what the Supreme Court requires is 
40 sets of bound documents for each filing that you make. Well, now it's saying in the age of coronavirus and to help limit the spread not only to the justices, but also to the people who work at the Supreme Court and process these filings, you just need to file one version and it doesn't have to be bound. So out of work for the Supreme Court printers, I guess. For now, I guess. So other federal courts have led the way to doing away with some of the old requirements during this time. That's right. And so we see the Supreme Court really actually catching up with the lower courts um, and what they have been doing. We see that not just with these paper filings, but also things like telephonic hearings and live streaming of arguments, too. Now, the court has announced its schedule for the upcoming argument by telephone sessions. That's another break with tradition, of course. What's the first argument scheduled? Well, the first argument scheduled is actually a trademark case um, that's really been running under the wire um, in the Supreme Court cases until now. Um, It has to do with a really technical part of the trademark law and what can be trademarked. Uh, There's been some speculation going around that one of the reasons that the Supreme Court agreed to hear that case first was that there are really seasoned advocates um, that are going to be arguing that case, people from the Solicitor General's office, which of course is the federal government's lawyers in the Supreme Court, and also a woman named Lisa Blatt from Williamson Connolly, um, who has gotten a lot of props from the justices before for her arguments and her argument style. So a test run sort of, not with one of the controversial cases. That's right. I mean, at least that's the speculation. The Supreme Court very rarely explains why it it issues a lot of these orders. And so we don't know for sure, but that's one reason for why they might have agreed to hear this somewhat lower profile case first thing off the bat. What are you going to be listening for when you hear these arguments? I'm curious about how they're going to avoid stepping on each other and whether they'll have to be in sort of a line, an audio line. Well, they can't even avoid stepping all over each other during oral arguments. Right. The Supreme Court, this current Supreme Court is a really hot bench, and you often get justices who are interrupting each other, talking over each other, and the Chief Justice really has to play traffic cop in the courtroom. So it'll be interesting to see how he manages that through telephone. We've all now had these experiences being on Zoom and having people talk over one another, uh, but this is even more challenging. There's no video involved, apparently, so... Um, I will be watching out for that. Another thing that I'm going to be watching out for is that the Supreme Court has long resisted um, live streaming any audio or televising arguments. And one of the reasons is they say that some of the advocates might grandstand and maybe even some of the justices. So I'll be interesting to see if that happens uh, during these arguments. If it does, it may be a reason for the, the justices to continue to resist these once we go back to normal. And if it doesn't, it might give them something to think about for the future. Perhaps the most listened to arguments will be those in the blockbuster case over subpoenas for President Trump's financial records. When is that scheduled? Well, the justices set that one for May 12th, so it's actually the second to last set of cases that the court's going to hear. Hopefully, they'll have worked out all the kinks before the nation uh, tunes in to listen to that one. And another time-sensitive case is the one about faithless electors. Is that scheduled? That was scheduled. That's going to be the last argument on May 13th. And so, you know, I was talking before about speculating why the justices put these cases on while putting other cases off until the beginning of next term. These two cases that we just talked about, the subpoena cases and the faithless 
electors have some implications for the 2020 presidential election, and so they're time-sensitive. Other cases, though, it's harder to pinpoint why the justices put those cases on and not other ones. I think in particular for me, it was surprising to see that there's really a blockbuster IP case that the court was set to hear earlier, Google versus Oracle, that it's put off until next term. And again, we don't know why. The justices usually end the Supreme Court term on time. They're usually out of there by July for their vacations. Does this mean they're going to have to extend the term as well to make the decisions? Well, I think it really depends on how difficult it is for the court to kind of play catch up with these other cases. So typically what we see is that arguments will end in April and the justices will take May and June to wrap up all their opinions. It includes opinions that have been argued later in the term, but also the really difficult ones for them to decide where there'll be a lot of versions and drafts going back and forth. So the justices have been using this time where they haven't been hearing arguments to write those cases and get difficult questions hammered out, then maybe we won't see a delay. But if they're still having a lot of difficulty, we could see that time move back. Listeners may remember that this term was set up to be a real blockbuster. So there are going to be a lot of controversial issues for the justices to work through. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.